right, well, good morning, church family. Um, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 5. And for anyone who slept since last week, which is hopefully all of you, um, just a reminder that we read the story of how the Holy Spirit specifically led Saul and Barnabas to leave Antioch on a new missionary journey to preach the gospel, and their church sent them off, okay? And, and by the way, if, if any of y'all, I don't even know if the kids are still doing bingo, but if you're doing the bingo, there's some pictures for you. There's something I want to encourage all of you to consider, okay? And this is not just for the people here in the room. This is for you people at home uh, who are watching online or listening maybe later on uh, to the podcast. Um, so whether you're here in the building or whether you're online, um, but you're a member here, or whether you're watching online, but you're a member of another church, um, or maybe a frequent guest somewhere else, please let your church send you when you go. And here's what I mean by this. As a pastor, I have the immense privilege of shepherding one of the Lord's local flocks, and it's a real blessing to be able to do so. And, and there are times, you know, that people will come in from another church body, uh, and, I, and I get to take their confession of faith when they join this, this local congregation here at Crossroad. And that's a great experience. But there are also times when people leave our local congregation because they move or uh, because they feel the Lord has called them to go somewhere else and, and be somewhere else. And that can be a bittersweet process for everyone. You know, we grieve the loss, but we also embrace uh, the challenges ahead that the Lord gives us. And, and again, it, it's definitely bittersweet. But Listen, it is part of the duty and the honor of the local church to send its people out. To lay hands on people and pray for their faithfulness and pray for their success wherever they go. And too often, people leave their local congregation without allowing the rest of the body that opportunity. And this happens most often, I think, when someone's feelings are hurt and they just choose not to return. That's not how a family works. And it's not supposed to be how a church family works, but that's not mainly what I'm talking about here. Besides those times that people physically move away, sometimes people leave when they decide the congregation isn't the best fit for them anymore, and they, they feel the Holy Spirit is leading them somewhere else. When that happens, it's usually not easy, okay? And it's not supposed to be. But I want to encourage you, if this is ever the case with any of you here or any of you there, I want to encourage you, don't just disappear, don't stop coming, uh, you know, without giving your church body the opportunity to say goodbye to you. In fact, goodbye is not even the right thing to say. Because for the Christian, it's always see you later. There are no goodbyes for the Christian to another Christian. But give your chance, the, the church, the chance to send you. It, it, it's an honor for your church body, and it's a wonderful reminder that wherever you are, whatever part of the body, the, you are, we're all part of the glorious family of God. So please just, just keep that in mind. It will, it will always be see you later, even on our deathbed. And that, that's just that's something that was on my heart. Okay, and if you, uh, if, you know, I felt led to share it with you. If that connects with you in some way, awesome. If it doesn't, then that's fine. It's for whoever needed to hear it. Uh, now, today's message is on two seemingly contradictory but actually complementary sides of how God relates to people. Judgment and mercy. And this is a big part of today's text, which is actually a, a really cool story about how God deals with someone who is trying to prevent others from believing the gospel. 
Now what we'll see in this passage is that God is a just God who is very much against sin. Okay, he's especially against rebellious, intentional sin, and he, he will not allow it to go unpunished. He will give the unrepentant what they deserve. And we'll also see that he is a God that extends mercy to those who would receive it in faith, not giving us the punishment that we deserve, and, and we're going to talk about how he's able to do that. So if you don't mind, um, you can follow along with the screen as I read. We're going to start in verse 5. Um, before we do that, just pray with me. Father God, I ask in Jesus' name, I'm very distracted this week, this past week. Um, this morning, still kind of struggling with that. My mind is in a lot of different places. I just pray for focus. I pray for each person here. I know, Lord, that if, if I'm speaking to them and my mind is having trouble focusing, they're listening. They're going to have trouble, too. Father, we just ask in Christ's name that your spirit helps us to focus, to take what we're supposed to receive from your word today, and let it to take root and bear fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Um, based on the context, we can know that proclaiming the word of God as Christians in the synagogue was referring to the preaching of the Lord Jesus, not the Old Covenant. Okay, remember, this is Saul and Barnabas, after they leave Antioch, they get to this island, they start to preach through the island, and they're preaching in the synagogues. And the reason I can confidently say they're preaching the gospel is otherwise there would have been nothing new about the message. And there wouldn't have been any opposition coming to, to what they were doing. So Saul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel, which is, once again, all about who Jesus is and what God did through him and does through him. So the Lord's mercy is shown here in that he provides gospel preaching to those who don't deserve it and haven't asked for it. And the gospel message itself is one of mercy. You know, if you'll remember, the Lord's character is such that it requires that he punish sin because he is holy, because he is righteous. However, in sending his son Jesus, God the Father provided a perfect sacrificial lamb that had no sin. And 2 Corinthians tells us that Jesus Christ became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin on the cross. He died and was separated from the Father. And, and he did that in our place. Experiencing the wrath that we earned, the wrath that we deserved. So, so that he could free us from the penalty of sin. And then the Father raised him from the dead. Which means that all who come to him in faith receive eternal life in him. And it also frees us from the power of sin. Now this message... This is a message of mercy. We don't receive the judgment that we deserve because Jesus took it for us. Mercy. Anyway, so Saul and Barnabas were proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue. What, what were the synagogues? Yeah, they were the churches of the Jewish world, basically, right? Where they, they, would, uh, they would still practice things under the old covenant. They still read the law and things like that. Um, Basically, they were the local churches of the Jewish world. You know, they were autonomous from the temple to a degree. Um, the temple was in Jerusalem. But these were houses of worship for the people of Israel and for any converts to Judaism. And they were in various towns. And, and I hadn't really thought about it 
until I read it somewhere, but, but it's significant that they weren't doing this in hiding. They were fully visible to anyone and everyone out there preaching the gospel in places where they knew they were going to get some opposition. We're going to keep reading. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. It's a description of a pretty villainous character. He's a magician, which is never a good thing in the Bible. Uh, in fact, those who practiced magic arts in the Old Testament were typically condemned. Uh, Jonas and Jambres were Pharaoh's magicians. Scripture tells us they opposed Moses, whom uh, God had sent to deliver his people. But on top of that, this fellow was also a false prophet, which is also a bad thing. In Deuteronomy, uh, it prescribes the death penalty for anyone who is proven to be a false prophet. Although that doesn't seem to have been um, done very often. The people don't seem to have effectively carried out that law. Now, he was Jewish. I mean, his name is Jewish. Literally means son of Yeshua, bar Jesus. Of course, he was anything but that. Okay, so, so th this is the bad guy, okay, of this story. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, a, a proconsul was a, a governmental figure from Rome. Okay, so, so, and he would, he would have been a Gentile. So the fact that Bar-Jesus was with him may have meant that Sergius Paulus had him employed as, as a, a court magician or something like that because Gentiles didn't follow God's laws, you know, regarding magicians, regarding false prophets. And he had possibly been conned into believing that there was some legitimacy to this Bar-Jesus guy. But Luke says that Sergius Paulus was a man of intelligence, and the Greek word there actually means prudence. So it's less about his IQ, and it's more about uh, his willingness to listen to wisdom. He was predisposed to learning wisdom. So this Gentile, okay, who had a bent toward wisdom, shows another means of God's mercy. And that is simply put, he moves people to listen. You know, we know from Scripture that people who don't have help from the Spirit cannot understand the things of God. We learn that in 1 Corinthians. We also learn that they're hostile toward God's law. The sinful mind does not understand God's law. In fact, it is hostile to it. Romans 8. But God in his sovereignty inclines a person's heart and mind toward a, a desire for truth. And so the question, I guess, is why, this, why does this God-given inclination not occur in all people? And that's a sermon for another day. But we know for sure that not everyone receives the same desire for understanding the Lord. In fact, it seems it's more rare than not. Anyway, God's Spirit had, surged, uh, had stirred up Sergius Palace to listen to the apostles' message about Jesus, and it says he called them to himself. It's that Greek word uh, for paraclete, again, you know, the same word, the Holy Spirit. He called them to himself because he wanted to hear the word, and this apparently made Bar-Jesus very upset. You know, whether it was due to envy, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Sergius Paulus was, was his meal ticket. You know, we don't know. But he did not want the proconsul to listen to Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel. It says, but Alimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. 
Okay, now, now firstly, like so many Bible characters, um, this guy Bar-Jesus had a nickname, okay? And the nickname was Sorcerer in Latin, Elimus. And that's, that's how he was known. So, so just I'm telling you that so you don't let it confuse you, okay? Elimus and Bar-Jesus, same guy. But more importantly, we see from this passage that this man was deathly opposed to the message of the gospel and especially to its influence on his boss. He did not want his boss believing this stuff. And I doubt that was a big surprise to Paul and Barnabas, you know? It certainly shouldn't shock us either. There is always going to be some form of opposition to the gospel. It really doesn't get free-flowing uh, free very often, especially in a state setting. In this case, it was a man actively trying to dissuade another person from following the way. And one could argue that maybe Bar-Jesus was opposing them because his livelihood was at stake, and that's probably true, but remember this, okay? From a human perspective, the reason for opposing the gospel, it may not appear spiritual, but there is always, always, always an underlying spiritual battle. Always. As Ephesians 6 says, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world's rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And we may feel like our real enemies are other people, but they're not. Not in reality. They are under the thrall of the evil one. And we, we actually get a glimpse into that with what happens next. But Saul who is also called Paul, that's the first time we read that, I think, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, before we talk about what he said, uh, note that he looked intently at the sorcerer. It was very much a spiritual stare down. And I think here is where we, we get into the judgment side of things. Friends, God opposes those who oppose him. God opposes those who oppose him. We see this over and over in Scripture. And again, God's nature is holy. And he doesn't allow sin to remain in his presence forever. So if a person or a nation acts according to their nature and continues to fight against the Lord, then there comes a point where God responds in kind. And before Paul goes off on Elimus, he stares at him as though fixing him with the intent glare of God himself. And then he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I'm going to break that down in just a minute, but first, can we agree that God doesn't mince words? <laughs> No, in fact, when people repeatedly reject the Lord's mercy, then he confronts them with the truth of who they are, and it is not a pretty picture. And please understand, folks, nothing is hidden from God. He knows the heart. As deceitful and, and desperately wicked as the heart is, God knows it intimately. He knows it all. And remember that what Paul said here, this was from the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I can't stress this enough on three fronts. Okay, first... As we noted, the Holy Spirit can see into a person's heart and soul, right? And, and know everything there is to know about that person. And so none of this was guesswork. Like, none of, none of this was, was a misinterpretation of motive. 
Now, secondly, Elimus wasn't just misled or confused. He was evil and twisted. But the third takeaway is that Paul didn't judge Elimus on his own authority, but he spoke by the Holy Spirit. And the reason I think that's so important for us to recognize is that we have to be careful assuming that we have the license to judge the hearts of others. We don't have that ability. I hope we all understand that. We can't see anyone else's heart, but Jesus does say that we will know the wolves in sheep's clothing by their what? By their fruit. So having said all that, let's look at Paul's accusations because they're pretty brutal. Um, first, he calls Elimus a son of the devil, which is kind of ironic considering his name means son of Jesus. But that is precisely the type of person that rejects and opposes God, a son of the devil. Do you remember in the book of John, uh, chapter 8, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees that wanted to kill him? Maybe not? Okay, fine. He said, <laughs> he said I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He's talking about biologically. He says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And by the way, um, if you want to look this up later, it's the latter half of John 8. Um, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, well, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Okay, here's the gist. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, I'm going to say that again. Because this is Jesus speaking to people who can't understand him. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. That is some hard truth. Anyone who receives and loves Christ is a child of God, but a person who hates and rejects Christ is the son of the devil. What else does Paul call him? He calls him the enemy of righteousness, as opposed to a person who loves righteousness, as the Lord does. You look at Psalm 33, it talks about how God loves righteousness. It talks about how justice is the foundation of his throne. He also calls him literally a worker of recklessness, which is kind of a weird saying, but it reminds me of that proverb. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but there's this verse in Proverbs where it talks about uh, a madman shooting fiery arrows at random. That's kind of what that is. Just a person that's, that's just doing things recklessly. And he says that he is full of all deceit. Listen, if anybody is a master of deceit, it's the devil. And you can be sure that a person that is habitually deceptive is well acquainted with the devil's ways. I saw a post last week that uh, said, Remember, the serpent didn't tempt Adam and Eve to steal, 
to kill, to commit adultery. He tempted them to question God's word. It fits really well into Paul's next accusation that Elimus was distorting God's straight ways. And this is one of Satan's oldest tricks. Takes some of God's truth and injects just a little bit of lie into it. Just enough to make it into something else. It's a real sleight of hand. You know, we've seen it in cults, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. We've seen it in so-called gospels that are truly fake False gospels like the prosperity movement and the the social justice movement. We've seen it in the adoption of deistic moralism, which pretends at Christianity but teaches salvation by works. The devil's lies mixed in with truth can ruin the truth. The biblical gospel is about Jesus Christ. His person, his death, and his resurrection and how God saves us through him. It's not about being a good person. It's not about health and wealth. It's not about creating utopia on earth. It's it's not about getting your own planet when you die. It's about Jesus. And anything else is in opposition to Jesus. So after denouncing this sorcerer as basically a satanic puppet that he is, Paul announces God's judgment on him by saying, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And that, that's pretty intense, right? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to, to tell somebody, You're going to pay for your actions one day, but it's another thing to say, Okay, you're blind. You know, boom, and he's blind. He can't see. It says, Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This is the guy that just a few minutes ago was getting up in their grill, you know? He was, he was standing there opposing them in their face and trying to keep them from preaching the gospel, and now he's wandering around begging people to help. But that was pretty humbling for this once exalted sorcerer. But, but this blindness that's inflicted on him makes perfect sense. It, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a physical representation of his spiritual being. Blinded. The Bible tells us in several places that the Lord gives grace to the humble and raises them up, but it says he punishes the evildoer. The Bible is clear. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's clear that the person who rejects God and continues to refuse to obey his will, that person, that nation, is under God's divine wrath. In the Bible, uh, divine punishment is often meted out on wicked people in, in some pretty shocking supernatural ways. You might consider our passage from a couple weeks ago. Remember when King Herod died from a sudden horrible parasite infestation? It's pretty awful. But if you keep going through the Bible, you know, just a quick flip through the scriptures, you'll see people that are destroyed by fire from heaven in multiple places. We see a gang of youths that's mauled by bears. We see people swallowed by the earth. We see almost all of mankind drowned in a deluge. And then here, of course, God strikes a man blind that up until that moment had been trying to turn someone else away from the faith. Yet as weird as it sounds, there's a a really strong note of hope in this passage. 
I don't know if anybody caught it, but we see it in the form of this little phrase, for a time. Consider this. God could just as easily have caused Elimus to burst into flame, you know, or, or just otherwise drop dead, but he didn't. Instead, he struck him blind for a time. And while God's judgment is often revealed in his punishment on the wicked, his great capacity for mercy is revealed in that he sometimes disciplines us temporarily according to his purpose. And friends, listen, there is a significant difference between punishment and discipline, although they may look similar in practice. Punishment is a negative consequence for an action that is intended to have a punitive effect, meaning it's, it's giving someone what they deserve in direct proportion to the offense committed. It's that whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life system of justice. It doesn't leave a lot of room for mercy. But discipline is intended to have a corrective effect. It's meant to bring us from rebellion to submission. So church, punishment satisfies justice, but discipline sanctifies just us. God's elect, his people, those who are beyond the point of no return, they receive punishment. But for those who belong to Christ, whether now or in the future, Jesus himself already received the punishment that we earned. And so we don't have to experience God's wrath. We will still experience discipline. which It's, it's temporary, and it only occurs in this life, and that serves to shape us into the image of God. And by the way, if, if you're, you know, right now, if you're going through a period of discipline and you're struggling with it, the Bible says that there is evidence of God's love for you. That that is evidence right there of God's love for you as your father. And if you want to look that up, if you're like, I, I don't know where that would be. Listen, look it up. Hebrews, in fact, write this down. If you're going through a tough time right now, write this down. Hebrews 5, excuse me, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Just write that down. We're not going to read it right now. Read it later. Uh, anyway, friends, back to our story. We, we don't know the ultimate fate of Elimus. I mean, that, that's God's business anyway. But the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to him other than that he was humble, that he was reduced to the point of asking people to lead him by the hand. And I want to ask you this question. Is it possible that he later repented and believed? I mean... Consider that there is someone else in the Bible who was struck blind for a time. Also in the book of Acts. Who is it? Saul. This guy, this same guy that's standing right here telling, hey, your turn, you know. <laughs> it's the same guy. And what happened to Saul? He became the greatest Christian missionary that the world has ever known. So, so we don't know about Elimus, but I think it's fair to say that no one who is still on this side of the dirt is beyond hope unless God has said so. And that's his prerogative. We can't know what his plans are until he reveals them to us. Okay, 
Um, back to the text here. To recap, Paul and Barnabas have been traveling across the island preaching the gospel. This Roman ruler that's kind of in charge of the area, he calls them to share the gospel with him. When he gets there, the sorcerer tries to keep him from believing. And so Paul pronounces God's judgment on the sorcerer. He goes blind. It's totally obvious that it's the hand of God. So here's the result. Luke writes, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is a really interesting sentence to me in light of what just happened. I mean, it, it seems like it should read, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the power of the Lord. Right? But that's not what it says. Even though the miracle might have been spectacular, it was the teaching of the Lord that led him to faith. And as a, a man whose vocational calling is instructing people in the teaching of the Lord, I find this to be a really, really cool and encouraging passage. Because I'll tell you what, if I had the ability to stand up here and perform miracles, that might be pretty cool, but without the gospel, it won't save anybody. There's too many folks that don't realize that. You can roll up to the, to the front in a wheelchair, and if the, the preacher has the miraculous ability to cause you to stand up and walk, that doesn't save you. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Remember, God's mercy is shown plainly in the message of Jesus. And his mercy is also shown plainly when a person receives it because a person believes the gospel when God allows repentance. And I'm aware that this is a touchy subject because it raises questions about the idea of, of predestination, which is a biblical concept, and the idea of, of free will. But I, I want to repeat what Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So whatever view you take of election, please understand, the word teaches that our ability to receive the gospel comes from God. It is a mercy of God that he provides through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Were it not for Jesus, each of us would still be under God's wrath. And the final manifestation of that wrath will occur before a great white throne. The final stage of the judgment of God is that he condemns to hell. This is not something that we talk about a whole lot or that we enjoy talking about, but we need to acknowledge this. Hell is real. It is a place that people really will, really will go if they continue to reject steadfastly refusing Christ and put their hope in something else, if that is you, there is only eternal punishment to look forward to. That is not a pleasant thought, is it? And for those of us who love someone who is unsaved, we have to recognize that person is making this choice. We need to preach the gospel. Hell is real. And is God's prerogative for those who continue to steadfastly reject, to condemn them to hell. 
but he has provided a way out. Through his son Jesus, God has provided a way so that anyone who comes to him in faith can be forgiven our sins. We can be blessed with eternal life. And I urge you, friends, because he made that way, don't turn and look for another way. Don't assume there's some other way because there isn't. You don't want to spend forever separated from God and paying a penalty for rejecting him. He provided a way out, and that is through the person, the death, and the life of Jesus Christ. Believe on him. And if you think it's too late, that you're too far gone, consider Paul, who persecuted the church, you know? You are not too big of a sinner to be forgiven if you'll repent and believe. Scripture says that God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. It's our sin that God uses to reveal to us our need for him, our dependence on him, so that he can lavish mercy on us. His word tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's one of my favorite little passages there. James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Believe that. Believe him. And receive the free gift of forgiveness by grace through faith. Because guys, his judgment is terrible, but his mercy is wonderful. And it's there for us. And he is calling you. He's calling you. So answer. Father God, we ask in Jesus' name that you will help our hearts to recognize the desperation that we are in apart from Jesus. We pray for conviction. We pray for the courage to make changes that need to be made. But Father, most importantly, we ask that you will change our hearts. Father, if there's anyone here who does not believe on Jesus, we ask that you will give them that, that ability, that courage. Help them to recognize that truth, to grasp it, to grab hold of it and not to let go. For those of us here who have already grasped it and, and have grabbed hold of it, help us to cling Father, we pray for anyone who has come to faith today that they might recognize their need to profess that faith publicly before a congregation of believers and to be baptized by immersion as your word teaches and to walk faithfully with you. We can't do it without you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.